Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More than a decade after the 2011 uprising, after more than four armed conflicts, after at least three international political processes, and impunity for uncountable violations of human rights law and international humanitarian law, with an incredible lineup of guests, we reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on. All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed, And I am Alham Saoudi. Let's go. Here we are, episode 33, the third in this season four, where we are trying to unpick all that we mean when we talk about justice. And we're getting into the flow of things now. Yes, Alham, it's great to be back. And I think it's important for us to really get into what justice means after a decade since the 2011 uprising. As our listeners may know, the series is highlighting a key report we published out now about what perceptions of justice are for Libyans in Libya after a decade of politics and conflict. And I think one of the most interesting areas in the report is what people told us about who justice should serve. That really touched a nerve with me. What I often find so frustrating is that the Libyan peace process and so many mechanisms seems to be focused on the perpetrators and the victims become this homogenous group of people that sit somewhere in the background. I know exactly what you mean. I actually think the anonymity of the victims is a sad reflection of where we are today. One of the things that makes me proud of the work that we do at LFJL is that we ensure that all our work is victim-centric. Actually, a not small part of that was inspired by our guest today, who has constantly pushed LFJL to do better on this as a member of our advisory board. I'm so excited to speak to her about what it really means to ensure victim participation in justice mechanisms. Then let's get started. Carla Firstman is a perfect guest with whom to discuss victim participation. Her career spans fieldwork to academia. She spent time in Rwanda, among other things, working on the domestic trials that followed the 1994 genocide. She was in Sarajevo as executive legal advisor of the Commission for Real Property Claims of Refugees and Displaced Persons in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and just last year was in the Congo with the United Nations Mission. She also was director of Redress from 2014 to 2018, winning the extremely prestigious MacArthur Award for Creative and Efficient Institutions. She's a member of the Council of Europe's Expert Council on NGO Law and was recently a judge on the Aban Tribunal into Atrocities in Iran, where I had the pleasure of presiding with her. There is more, but one theme that is consistent throughout is her work focusing on victims, not least her series of Victims' Voices, which she authored for LFJL, all linked in the episode description. You may remember Carla from episode four in our very first season, We are thrilled that she continues to support LFJL so fully, including in her role as chair of our advisory board, and that she has agreed to come back to Libya Matters. Welcome, Carla. It's so wonderful to welcome you back to Libya Matters. Thank you so much. And it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Libya Matters is such an important initiative, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to support it. Great. So let's get started with some definitions. What do we really mean when we talk about victim-centered or victim-led processes? I think it's a really important question because it's often used. It's often referred to in reports by policy actors and whatnot. Um, But then one goes to the policies themselves and queries what is actually being done. There's often a mismatch. So the first thing to say about it is that one often hears these words, but that doesn't mean that the process itself is going to 
have any real benefit for victims. Often it can be uh, lip service. But what should it mean as opposed to what does it mean? In terms of what it should mean, firstly, it recognizes that victims are key stakeholders to any justice process, that they are persons with with minds, with rights, with perspectives, which with needs, and the complexity of their experiences, as well as their thoughts about justice and about their lives and their future, all of that in its complexity needs to be part of the justice system and justice process. The justice process needs to make space for that. But one thing I would say with respect to that is it's important to note that a victim-centered process is not a process where it's a victor's justice. One, one might think, well, a victim-centered justice means that one doesn't respect the rights of the defense. Not at all. It's simply the recognition that part of the justice process is about recognizing the space and utility of victims' voices within the process. So can we just take that one step further before we move on and maybe unpack the difference between a victim-centered approach and then a victim-led approach? A victim-led approach, I don't think it's a term of art, um, but if one thinks of when would victims be initiating and leading a justice process, here we could think of cases that are brought by victims, whether to a domestic court, a regional court, an international court, where they're the ones that are driving the process. So in some domestic legal systems, victims will have the ability to start a criminal process by uh, putting forward evidence and pleadings to the prosecution or to the judges directly. In other countries, um, they, they will have less possibilities to do that. Another example of a victim-led process could be where a claim for compensation is made by victims to persons who they allege have caused um, their suffering. Um, So those are indications of victim-led processes. More often with respect to very serious or widespread crimes, you'll have victims who are advocating for justice to take place and their advocacy helps to press the decision makers to engage with a justice process. So there you could say that it's victim-led in that the process was initiated on because the victims were advocating for it, but the process itself takes on its own role and independence outside of the proceeding um, where the victims generate it specifically. I'm, I'm not sure if that distinction is, is, is clear. No, it does. And I think that if we were to take this now in, in the Libya context and look at how we define victims when we're dealing with the entire transitional justice process, how do we do that in the overall context in Libya? Well, I would say it's quite difficult because um, the category of, of victim 
can be quite political as well, because when one defines who has suffered a particular harm, then one is usually making some kind of a statement about the harm and the persons or entities that caused the harm. Mm. There's also a challenge with massive violations of human rights or international crimes, where you could say that the whole population has suffered. And that would be true. In many respects, a whole population can can suffer. Mm. But when it comes to, to referring to individuals as victims, um, usually one is making a connection between an individual who has suffered harm, whether physical or mental or some other kind of harm, as a result of the commission of a crime. Um, so um, it's a very broad definition. And essentially, in the Libya context, uh, you have a really wide array of persons and groups who could fit within that definition. And the question is always going to be with the justice process, what are the priorities? How are we going to do justice in the most effective way for the greatest amount of people taking into account the types of harms that were caused? So there's always going to be the sense of how are we going to do justice? And that enters into the debate about who do we consider to be a victim? Though I would say the category of victim can be very large, and there's nothing wrong with that as a principle. And, and building up on that, because we were just chatting actually before the recording about how exactly what you said, where you could effectively categorize the entire Libyan population as suffering as a result of this, right? And so that's one class of, of victim if we widen it. But also I'm thinking of you making a distinction between what it is and what it should be. And for me, I think that's a really important distinction. So if we were to say, you no, know, bearing in mind what a victim-centered approach should be, well, what would that really look like in terms of an approach? Say in Libya at the moment, we're, you know, we're at the stage of exploring new transitional justice mechanisms, trying to um, address some of the issues. There's a clear mandate to the Presidency Council in Libya to take this process forward. If we were to, to design that transitional justice process from a victim-centered approach, what would be the, the key pointers that it's going in the right direction? I think the first step is, is really the knowledge, building up an understanding of the different ways that different segments of the society have been harmed and have suffered harm and what their impediments for justice might be. And then that helps us to consider procedurally, well, what special measures do we need to put in place to ensure that people who may be vulnerable or marginalized can engage with the justice system as they are entitled to do? So it's more about taking special measures to ensure that all communities who have been victimized have the ability to engage with the justice system. Whereas the normal situation is that some communities may feel so distant, so removed from the justice process that they can't even imagine what it might mean to participate 
And that needs to be uh, overcome. That is the heart of trying to arrive at a justice process, which is victim-centered, which recognizes the challenges that victims may have to engage with the justice system and making it friendly, making it accessible. Hi, my name is Sonia Markova, and uh, I'm a research fellow with uh, the Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And I have uh, been working on the research on the justice perception in Libya. And in terms of inclusion, they, there was a very strong um, need also for people to, to be included in that process because they have been excluded, for vic- especially victims, for such a long time from all processes, including reconciliation, uh, local reconciliation or national reconciliation processes, or even some of the criminal um, trials during the Qaddafi, they also felt that they have not been part or had little knowledge about what happened. So really to achieve justice for them, they felt it's very important that they, they are included in the process. So is there an argument then to say, given the political situation in Libya now and how fraught it is and how politicized the situation is, that actually it's now impossible to get a victim-centered approach on any me- on any mechanism now. And there's an argument that not only are we looking about who the victim is, but when the right time is to categorize people as victims or to reach out to them, because it's I'm, I'm struggling to see a situation where a, a process will be genuinely inclusive in terms of all the groups that are impacted. And then you might be in a situation where you cause more harm than good through a process that doesn't recognize the harm done across the board. And so is there an argument, which I'm hoping there isn't, but I'm probing this with you, that actually now is not the time for some of this work to be done because there is no, it's, it's impossible to do a genuinely victim-centered approach. I think to do a, a, a victim-centered approach, one doesn't need to, let's say, categorize and say, okay, these are the classes of people who we're going to call victims. One doesn't need to do that. So the decision makers or the policy makers don't need to go down the track of identifying certain classes of people which will automatically leave other people out. And there you have your your, your political mess. I think the opposite needs to happen. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is that one needs to identify certain classes of people who've suffered harm, who are clearly marginalized and uh, far from the ability to access justice and open up the channels of communication so that their ability to engage is improved and meets the ability to other, of others to engage. So it becomes more equitable. So perhaps it's women's groups, perhaps it's marginalized ethnic or minority groups. Different parts of the country may may have certain kinds of barriers to access justice. One would want to think a a little bit more about that to figure out who, who are the kinds of people who face barriers and what practically are those barriers and what can be done to increase access to justice by removing or lessening those barriers. So it's like more of an incremental approach, basically, instead of saying that we have to kind of address every ill to get this process running, right? We, we can start where we can and, and identify some of these failings, if you like, and then we move forward. Yes, I think so. And I think, I think an important part of that is also leaving space for victims' participation to impact the process as it moves forward. And I think that's really important. 
So imagine you're creating space for, for particular groups who've never engaged with the justice system before to express their views about the justice system going forward. One would want to ensure that the policymakers in the justice fields can engage with, the, with that input that they're newly getting, and that will have an impact on how justice moves forward. So not only is it incremental in that one makes space for people to engage, but the policymakers need to make space to to listen and to react and respond to that engagement. And and so much of what you're saying now reflects wholly with what we what we got through the surveys we did um, over a course of an entire year, talking to people about their perceptions of justice and and what that would look like. And you know, we heard several times from from victim groups saying, well, you know, we need to be part of designing it, not just the benefiting from the process, right? So I think that's, you know, that goes right to the heart of it, that actually part of the engagement, not necessarily even from state actors, but from civil society actors like ourselves, is to start and understand what victims believe the justice system should achieve. Because there is a little bit of um, kind of patron, all of us can be at risk of patronizing victims by purporting to always know what they need. Or what we can we can offer them when actually very seldomly do we remember to consult them on on the mechanism in itself as opposed to how the mechanism will affect them. So I think it, it's for me it's great that this kind of resonates with what we found in in the report and and is a reminder for us to to kind of do better in design as well as implementation of of mechanisms. I I just wanted to confirm um, to agree with you on on this idea of pat- patronizing because it's something that I have found in so many different aspects of my work over many years, where um, this sense of victims as someone, as people we need to help, as we treat them as people who deserve charity, as opposed to people who have rights, have the ability to express those rights, but are, you know, have certain needs because they have been victimized. Having needs because one ha- one has been victimized doesn't mean that one should infantilize victims. It's and and I see that time and time again and I think it's really it's really vital. I, I feel at the moment we've been discussing this quite theoretically and so I want to try to bring it in a bit more to come concrete examples and I can't believe this is the example I'm starting with but, but let's go with it. Uh, we know that the International Criminal Court is, is one of the is one of the mechanisms, one of the few mechanisms that has a, a formal process for victim participation. Now, we try not to judge that process based on our experience in Libya, but I wonder if there have been any sort of a situation at the court that has benefited or where the victim participation structure there worked. Well, I think um, victim participation has been important for... Um, the court to see how local people view particular crimes as important and how they've suffered. Um, I think also, even with respect to the the first proceedings, so the trial of uh, Thomas Lubanga in Democratic Republic of the Congo, which concerned the use of child soldiers. Um, That case, I think, was really interesting because at the outset, the children and the families, so the parents and the communities of these, where, where these children were taken from, they didn't really have 
a strong understanding in all cases that what was done was such a big harm. And I think the process of listening to the children, listening to the organizations who were supporting those children, helped to change minds domestically about how horrible the process of forced recruitment of children was. And I think that had a tremendous impact. Um, So there you can see that it's not only being open and listening to persons who would qualify as victims to say what they mean. There's a process of giving them information and engaging in a two-way perspective so that um, the victims themselves um, may, may well, through that process of engagement, um, expand their thinking on how they characterize their own victimization. So I thought that proceeding was really quite interesting from the perspective of how victims themselves perceived how they were victimized. But playing devil's advocate there, is there not an argument that actually that's not the point of a courtroom? It's not to bring the emotion into the into the courtroom, that actually that's sort of influencing the decision away from the evidence and the facts and the rational um, conclusions and trying to emotionalize the situation and, and manipulate it by bringing in the victims? Well, I the judges are independent arbiters of, and they'll receive information from all sorts of sides and they have a statute upon which they take their decisions that um, victims explain, you know, how the crimes impacted them um, is an important part of the consideration. It's not the only consideration. There's great room and great space for the rights of the defense. And here, I think it's also important, and I can take another case from the International Criminal Court, which is the uh, case against Dominic Ongwen uh, in Uganda, who himself was forcibly recruited as a young child uh, into uh, rebel forces, and then went on to commit, as an adult, very serious crimes which were uh, for which he was convicted before the International Criminal Court. Um, so that case is now under appeal with the defense um, putting forward very strong arguments about the need to, to look at Dominic Ongwen's background mm. and how he came into the process in, in terms of uh, whether it should have mitigated the sentence or even was uh, should have been considered to be a defense for the judges to decide. But I think giving space within the courtroom to understand the context in which crimes are perpetrated and the impact of those crimes can only be a positive step for, 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 for the administration of justice as a whole. So if we were to now zoom, bring this back to Libya and look at the ICC's role and how victim participation has kind of played out. And I think that this is one of our continuous frustrations and calls in, with, uh, with the ICC's engagement on, on Libya in terms of victim, uh, victims' participation and outreach. So we do know that in January 2021, there was a decision by the chambers to ensure the participation proceedings for victims. But at the same time, it w- they went on to say that this was not a general right 
um, at the investigation level. But instead, for, for the investigation level, that this was not necessarily something that, that should be expected. But building on everything that we've, we've kind of said earlier uh, today is that that is one of the core components of leading this process towards justice. So is it fair to make that ex- distinction between um, that initial investigation level and then um, uh, later during the trial? I think the way in which the court has dealt with the different procedural rights of victims through different phases the, of the process has mainly focused on trying to pre- preserve the independence of the prosecutor and not, let's say, insul- insulating the prosecutor from different requests coming from all angles to change the charges, increase the charges, that kind of thing. My perspective has always been the participation of victims on issues such as the scope of the charges or how broad an investigation should be, should be heard and should factor in, but not necessarily overly influence the decision that the prosecutor takes. The prosecutor should be listening to all sorts of voices, but then taking its own independent view with respect to how it, as an office, wants to proceed. But to to prevent certain voices from being heard with a view to privileging the independence of the prosecutor uh, seems to... Uh, suggests that the prosecutor is really a body which is open to a lot of influence when one would hope that its decision-making process would would avoid that anyways. So that's one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is purely, I think, financial and human resources from the side of the court. The court is trying to figure out, well, how, how are we going to Um, apply our limited budget. And with respect to Libya, where there's no case which is at an active stage um, in terms of um, a trial proceeding, for obvious reasons, you don't have a suspect who is at the seat of the court in The Hague at the moment. The court has taken the view, and, and I'm, you know, summarizing or, or, or simplifying, but has basically said, well, until you have that, um, we're going to limit um, the budget on issues like victim participation, etc. My view on that is that, that that is also problematic because one of the reasons you don't have a case in the trial phase is because victims are not active. And I think that connection is something which has been largely ignored. The impact of victims and civil society and their advocacy on the uh, cooperation framework of the court, so the ability of the court to secure the cooperation of of states uh, to transfer suspects to the ICC, I, I think that has is something which is somewhat underexplored. And also, um, if let's say tomorrow, um, someone was to be transferred to the ICC for trial, all of a sudden, uh, there would be a need to to do to, to prepare the victims to be able to engage, 
but they haven't been engaging up until now. So there would be a significant delay. They would be much less effective in their participation, their engagements in the trial phase, because there's been no resources and no ability for them to prepare themselves, to organize themselves in the pretrial phase. So those are unfortunate. Taking it from there, we've kind of established why it's important to ensure victim participation. We've looked at what the benefits are in, in, in the justice process. But if we were to flip this now and look at what the pitfalls may be, so maybe exploring when are, or, or if there are times when this, this approach is not necessarily the best approach or not the most suitable. I think one one needs to be very careful that victim participation frameworks are matched by um, support, assistance, and protection. But I don't think the answer is to limit victim participation when those things are not present. The answer is to make those things present. So I I don't know that it, it, it wouldn't work. But in, in, in that sense, I, I think it's really important to say, okay, victim participation is a right. How are we going to make sure it's effective as opposed to limiting the rights where the uh, policymakers have decided not to prioritize making it effective? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm, I want to probe this a little bit more because, you know, we've, we've talked about and, 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 you know, for the record, I, I agree in case there's any question of that, that it is a right and that we, you know, we should all be working towards ensuring it instead of um, exceptionalizing it. But I remember starkly a conversation I had with a, a very well-regarded thinker uh, and a person with lived experience of being a victim. And I was told um, by them in no uncertain terms that we need to be careful because there's too much of a burden put on the victims to do the heavy lifting on justice. And, you know, to have to, you know, and the examples they were giving us, oh, we have to form groups. We have to, we have to advocate. Um, we risk being re-traumatized. And sometimes what we just need is to be left alone. And I've carried this with me because, you know, whenever we design a program, we say this will be victim-centered and we, we work really hard on that. But what if the class of victims is telling us they don't want to be part of this. They want to deal and heal in their time and, um, you know, and, and not to be dragged into processes in a way that might be like you first said very early on in, in this episode for the sake of lip service or the like. But even if it's not, you know, the, it was such a, a wake up call for me to hear. I'm, I'm tired of being told I'm a victim and therefore I need to show up. And so I think, is there a burden that we're putting on them? And, and, and I see that a lot in Libya, where, for example, the political process, the, the transitional justice process that's being designed is built on victims having to forgive, for example, in the reconciliation process, as opposed to perpetrators being held accountable. And that kind of social pressure, increasingly legal pressure to do that is, is very heavy on, on the shoulder of victims. And so are we, in trying to do good and being inclusive, actually contributing towards re-traumatization or re-victimization if a class of victims is, just wants to be forgotten. Your comments remind me of a conversation I had with a lawyer who was involved in ICC proceedings. 
And the view of this lawyer was... This doesn't bode well. It feels like I'm about to get told off, Carla, <laughs> with that introduction. So I'm a bit nervous, but Absolutely go on. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. But the view of this lawyer was, well, victims have a moral obligation to participate in proceedings. And at the time, I was uh, running a human rights organization which focuses on victims' rights. And... We were horrified by that because at the end of the day, victim empowerment is not about putting them as posters um, in, in the front if they don't want to be in the front. Uh, empowerment is about choice and it's about options. So what we need to do is to make sure that the choice and the options are real, they're valid, and that people are not choosing to disengage or not engage because the justice process is unavailable, ineffective, or uh, insecure with respect to their needs. We need to make the justice system capable of uh, being accessible. Um, but do, do victims need to engage with it? Absolutely not, um, because it's, it's about empowerment. It's about their choice. But the second thing that I would say, and this is a trend, where and particularly at the international level, um, if victims don't engage with justice processes because of the limited budgets of some processes, and often this is the case with truth commissions, and perhaps it's something which may resonate with uh, Libya's experience of truth commissions, if the victims are not supplying the data, um, that ends up being some kind of a justification for the limited results of a process, which can be really quite problematic too, because it's never for victims. It's not their role to cause ju justice to happen. Uh, they want to participate or engage with it, but uh, justice actors by their nature are independent there has to be some filter of, of whatever victims put forward. There, there's got to be, um, or else it's, uh, what's the point of having an independent justice system? So I don't know if that goes back on what I said previously. Um, I think these issues are, are quite complicated. But one thing is putting uh, victims in a position where they can engage and they're empowered and they have that possibility, but they can't be forced. And the second thing is, no, it's not their job. They're not taking on the job of prosecutors, um, but they should be able to engage with prosecutors like any purveyor of information. That's an interesting part because that reminds me of a conversation I had with someone at the ICC um, about the role of um, victims. And I was told, there, you know, this is very strange. This is the words he said. This is very, very strange because if victims are providing information, then we should treat them as witnesses. And, that, and there is a natural role for them in a legal system. If they're not providing um, information, they are therefore beneficiaries of the legal system. And so this kind of new role of you having an active part in a legal proceeding by virtue of being victim is muddying the waters of our legal process where there are very clear roles. There is a prosecution, there's a defense, and there are witnesses, and that's how it works. You add in this other, this other component, which doesn't really fit into the traditional kind of triangle 
And really, instead of it helping, it might ease the waters. I think that's very much a common law perspective in terms of legal systems. So the British legal system or American legal system or whatnot, where you have uh, prosecution, defense, and judges basically are more passive in a civil law system. Victims were always part and parcel with it. And the judges had a much more active role in terms of their evaluation of evidence. So I think with respect to the International Criminal Court and its procedure, it's not a common law process. It's somewhat in between the two legal systems. So I think some lawyers at the International Criminal Court have not necessarily moved on from the procedures which were more common law focused in the Yugoslavia tribunal or the Rwanda tribunal, where victims had no procedural role other than being a witness. As we're kind of wrapping up some of the questions we had, I wonder if there is a question about victim participation or a misconception that you really want to make sure we cover today. Well, I do think I mentioned it, but but I, I think really at the heart of it, with whatever kind of justice process one is talking about, it's to remember that victims are people and they have views. And sometimes we may like the views, sometimes we may not like the views. And in all that diversity, that's what needs to engage with the justice process, not some simplified version of victim, uh, not a single representative who speaks on behalf of thousands of victims, but the diversity of victims needs to somehow get into the justice process. And it's complicated, but, but that's what it's about, really. Now, I'm going to go off script, Marwa, but it's something we were talking about when we were all online waiting to sort of test all the technical stuff. And, you know, we talk about, in a positive way, that victims are not homogenous, it's not a single group, that we need to take on the different types of victims, etc. But what we were talking about earlier is there seems to be different classes of victims in terms of their importance um, politically um, in the international community. And, you know, we, we were like reflecting on the situation in Ukraine and how, in addition to the horrors we're seeing there, and obviously no one's taking away from that at all, but that has also exposed some ugly truths about the justice system and how it defines and looks at. And so I wonder whether we can take a moment just to reflect on that um, element, because I feel it would be weird to have a conversation about how we define victims and not look about what's happening in the news as we speak in the terms of there are, you know, victims with whom it's easier to feel empathetic, it appears, than others. Well, I, I would say the two aspects of Ukraine, um, which seem to me very different than the, the way other situations have been portrayed in the media or even in policy responses are one, um, the dynamic of um, these people fleeing uh, persecution and how governments have been responding to the refugee crisis. Um, and uh, it seems that at least in, in the short term, it's a new, new situation but it seems that, that um, the way in which the response has gone, at least in Europe, is quite different to, um, to other uh, 
other other groups of people fleeing very significant harms in other parts of the world. So that that I think is really problematic. And then in other uh, the other issue has to do with the uh, persistence uh, of um, certain countries with respect to the need for justice, with respect to the situation in Ukraine, um, whereas with other situations, with extreme numbers of high deaths, um, horrible violations, uh, international crimes, crimes against humanity, um, you don't have that same insistence. And that is clearly um, something which is problematic. On the one hand, um, so one, one understands, for instance, that um, the places uh, where one can pursue a criminal action for the crime of aggression are limited and therefore special measures may be required. At the same time, um, this isn't the only incident. And it seems that uh, states are very much engaged in dealing with this situation, whereas that, that, that engagement was not so um, strong with respect to other situations. Um, so here, I think in both circumstances, both with respect to refugees and the engagement on the need for justice, it's great and it's really important to see this engagement with respect to Ukraine. What's problematic is that that engagement was not uh, present with respect to so many other situations. I'm going to let that sit there. Um, we know that a lot of policymakers will listen to this in the context of Libya and perhaps it will encourage some some reflection. Before we wrap up, you'll remember this from our previous foray uh, together. Um, we have a debunking the narrative and I very unhelpfully used one of our, <laughs> our misconceptions in an earlier question. Um, but I think we'll still pose them to you as sentences we often hear. And the idea here is we get a, a short knee-jerk response to it as opposed to the very thought out, eloquent responses you've been doing so far, like a much more quicker um, instinctive response. What about you want to kick us yep. off? So victims do not have a role in criminal proceedings. It confuses things. There's the prosecution, defense, and witness. They don't fit in. Clear answer. They do. It's, you posed it as such a matter of fact, no, they don't, that the only way to address it is yes, they do. Because in a way, the way, the way in you've, there's, there's no re- rationale as to why. Why don't they fit in? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so that's why I, I, I've responded as I have. Lack of nuance, merits, lack of nuance. I like it. Um, the second one I've got is um, victims are obliged to participate in justice processes to facilitate reconciliation. Victims need to be empowered to figure out what it is, how, how and if they wish to engage with the justice process. They're, they do it in their own name for them. And they're not there to service other people's interests or processes' interests. I think, as the young folk might say, there that's a mic drop. <laughs> um, we're trying to expand our audience, Carla, but clearly I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job. But thank you so much um, for your time. As always, it it leaves us thinking 
more as we leave the conversation um, than when we came in. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it was a great conversation and um, lots to ponder from here. We'll definitely be calling on you again in future seasons. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Mohammed Al Misiri, head of research at LFGL. Thanks for listening to Libya Matters, and today we are speaking about victim participation at the ICC. In Libya, the victim participation process faced many challenges due to some reasons. This can be summarized that victims and Libyan civil society are frustrated at the lack of tangible progress of ICC cases and the failure to issue new arrest warrants against most known perpetrators. Also, the failure to take all possible steps to secure the timely enforcement of issued arrest warrants. So, for example, the ICC prosecutor issued repeated requests that Libya transfer wanted perpetrators into, Libya, into the ICC custody. However, it has not been consistently proactive in seeking enforcement in the face of Libya's reluctance to comply. So the ICC could definitely do more to require greater support from UN political organs as an example, or for example to report incidents of non-cooperation to the UN Security Council. Also the failure to show progress with both existing and other potential cases of crimes within the jurisdiction of the court is a challenge to Libyan civil society and victims. The state of impunity in Libya has generated a general feeling of frustration and despair among the victims, along with a growing feeling of doubt and uncertainty with regards to what the court can actually accomplish. So victims are reluctant to be in contact with the ICC because they lack trust in the institution. They lack clarity about protection measures, in addition to the fact that cases take too much time and still remain unsolved. Also, the ICC website is available in English and French with limited Arabic documents. This language barrier alone has made the ICC inaccessible, not only to the victims, but also to lawyers and civil society in Libya. And the last reason, but this is the main reason, is the court's outreach activities regarding Libya has been very minimal. For example, there was no outreach or communication plan when the Libya situation was first opened or when any of the arrest warrants were made public. This is not only a missed opportunity, it is a failure of the court's responsibility to ensure victims are adequately informed and supported to participate in proceedings so that their views and concerns can be appropriately considered. Thank you. In next week's episode, we explore. So there was a real risk of there being propaganda around, you know, who are the heroes, quote unquote, who are the good guys, and also a diminishing of the real atrocities that were occurring and that were occurring at the hands of, of U.S. forces. And so I think that, I mean, the very, you know, original template of what a people's court is, is it was really about the narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by me, Marwa Mohammed and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demiri Media. The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are Mae Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Marwa Mohammed, and me. It was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohammed Al-Masiri, Mohammed Al-Mustafa, Rawia Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah, and Jürgen Schur. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible 
by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ.